everybody, welcome back to Frame Rate, the show where we rate frames, frames of film to be specific. This is not the show where we talk about oil paintings. That show would be great. I would listen to it, but um, no, this is what the movie are you doing? one. I'm one of your hosts, Michael Swain. I'm your other host, Abe Epperson. And with us virtually, because that's how things are done these days, is one of our dear friends and a superstar and co-owner and creator of what we consider our sister podcast feed. Please introduce yourself, sir. Hi, uh, I'm Tom Ryman. That's true. (laughs) It's Tom Ryman, you guys. that That is accurate. That is accurate information. Yeah. Yeah. It's been too long since your voice has shown up on this feed, I would say, but... You had a move and a new job, as did I. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's good to have you back, man. It's good oh, to hear thanks. the luscious timber of your pipes. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm <laughs> glad to include Michael in this reunion of Tom and I. Uh, I so? mean, we've done a lot of stuff before, but Tom and I talking about movies. Boy, I get excited. <laughs> Boy, <laughs> I get excited. I think because well, we we had that. Cracked, uh, what was it called? The Cracked Movie Podcast? Cracked crack Cinema Organization? Something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and CCL. We just wanted to talk about Spielberg and they'd only give us a month. <laughs> right. And we were like, gosh, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. And then we decided that we had to do all movies because that was the call. And we did it. I mean, we all love movies, but uh, God. <laughs> We are not talking about Spielberg today. Well, I mean, we do Coen Brothers Brothers, and I got to say I disagree with whoever made that like managerial decision. I think a podcast that's a deep dive into the works of Spielberg is very clickable and like accessible to well, lots that's of how, people. Yeah. That's how we pitched it. We pitched it like uh, like uh, Kurt Vonnegut's except for Spielberg. That would have been mm. great. <clears throat> um, we'll do it. One, one or the other organization will do it at some point. <laughs> well, we did four. We had a Spielberg month. We did have a but, Spielberg uh, month, yeah. Yeah, but I, yeah. but we took those to the desert and buried them in a giant hole, if I recall. So mm-hmm. that's, yes. That's I'm not even. I'm not even sure if the feed still exists. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Who? Who can say? Who can say? Who? Who, who among us? Google. Who among us these has days. this forbidden knowledge? <laughs> but speaking yeah. of what can be said. Which is a very mm-hmm. clumsy way to get us back on track. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, all of the cheer that you hear in our voices, because it's delightful to speak with friends, even if work is your only excuse to speak um, most of the time. Th- we're talking about a movie that will drain all the joy from our voices by design, and we will become husks <laughs> as we discuss it. So get ready for keep, that ride. I'm gonna no. I'm gonna keep my foot on the joy accelerator. You're gonna be super time. cheery. I'm gonna I'm humble. I'm gonna be joyful about this Good. this this hideous film. We yeah. so yeah. I just want to first <laughs> shout out and thank John Hardy, who is the uh, Patreon subscriber, aka Bean Among Beans, who brought you this film. Uh, and invited us to watch it and talk about it. And the film in question, if you click titles at random without scanning them with your eyes, is The Cook, The Thief, The Wife, and Her Lover. His uh, wife, but yeah. His wife. The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Written and directed by Peter Greenway. And mm-hmm. uh, if you haven't seen it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just throw it right to Tom and ask you to encapsulate the film. Okay. You, yeah. <laughs> as much um, as you can. Honestly, the plot of the film is like six things. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it starts, we're introduced to the thief, uh, I, whose name I've already forgotten, but it's Michael Gambit. Albert. Gam- Albert, that's right. It's my, uh, Michael Gambit Albert. plays Albert, who's this uh, British gangster. He owns this restaurant that's run by the cook, this French guy named Richard. And he abuses everybody inside the restaurant on a regular basis. Uh, strangers, it doesn't matter, uh, including his wife, Georgina, who is Helen Mirren. Um, and Helen Mirren begins an affair uh, with a regular at the restaurant, um, an actor I didn't recognize, actually. Um, mm. The character's name is Michael. He's just a, he's a, he's a, he's a bookseller. He just sits there reading books. Um, <laughs> and he catches her eye one night when Albert's being abusive and 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 terrible which is just what he normally is um and they start an affair at the restaurant that richard the cook sort of like allows like he allows them to like hide in his kitchen and stuff to meet because he really can't stand albert 
Um, <clears throat> Albert finds out about it, um, murders Michael, um, and then as revenge, um, Georgina <laughs> convinces Richard to cook Michael's body. And then she and Richard and the entire restaurant staff essentially hold Albert hostage in the restaurant and force him to eat Michael's body. Um, and as soon as he swallows his first bite, Georgina shoots him in the face and the movie ends. Which I kind of thought after <laughs> the way the movie played out, we got off easy in the end, honestly. Kind of, yeah. Like I thought they were, we, I thought we were going to have to sit there and watch him laboriously eat that entire Most body. Most of the body are like 60% yeah. or something. Yeah. yeah. So, but I think uh, great encapsulation, but I think um, it's hard to, it's hard to stress how effectively like when you go, uh, there's a gangster, um, he's like a piece of shit. A lot of movies have that character. This movie is slow and it's very well-crafted and it takes its time about like, like he's a piece of shit that it's hard to physically watch the movie. It's it like, this is one of the more visceral movies I've watched recently. And mm -hmm. uh, we've recently watched a lot of visceral movies for this podcast. But like... Uh, yeah, Michael you guys Gam did Bone Tomahawk. Exactly. <laughs> Michael Gambone in this is is so... And, and I think this is a ripe area of discussion and I don't mean to shoot the movie down, but like... The things that happen on just like a blocking level and a choreography level, even knowing that it's all fake, was so upsetting that I'm like, don't make Helen Mirren do this, you guys. And I just mean the acting that she has to do right now. Like, Oh, yeah. yeah. It's an upsetting film to watch. And, and intentionally so, so it's a success in that way. But man, yeah. uh, if anyone has trouble <clears throat> with movies that are like, fuck you, this is hard to take, uh, don't watch this one. But if you like that, this is good at that. This is hard to take. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, it's a weird, weird caveat. Um, yeah. Well, let's just say the first shot of the film is Michael Gambon first feeding dog shit to a guy mm -hmm. and then pissing on him. And all the dogs come and like start licking the shit off of him. And you're like, all right. And Tim Roth is there. And Tim, Tim, Roth. Tim, Roth, Tim Roth is holding the guy. And I believe Siren Hines is the one who actually pisses on him. Oh, yeah. Because okay. yeah. then, then Michael Gambon yells at him. But yeah, if you want to see Siren Hines play a, a young thug, this is the movie for you. Yeah, Tim Roth barely speaks. And I thought it was interesting just because now there's this pattern career wide of like, Tim Roth likes being in gross gross movies yeah <laughs> there's shot there's a shot of him trying to eat oysters and, and he just vomits up. oh my god <laughs> yeah then, all right but so it's like, like a little bit of vomit it's a, like a, yeah there's a fair amount of vomit any bodily fluid you can think of is this is in this, film. <clears throat> this <laughs> is wrong. yeah this this movie is grotesque in that way like i sat <clears throat> i sat down to watch this movie with like a plate of leftovers <clears throat> Mm. Uh, from the Christmas dinner leftovers. Prairie oysters, <clears throat> normal stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> having no idea what this movie was, I just heard about it. Like, I was like, oh, I this is a movie you. that's been on my radar. And, like, this, like, I couldn't eat immediately. <laughs> and then I couldn't eat for, like, hours after the movie. Like, it's so, it it, it, it does this intentionally. Like, I am, I am positive this was, what's the director's name? Greenway? Yeah, Greenaway. I'm positive this was his intention was to blur the lines between sex and eating and violence and all like the like the primal physical urges that human beings have mm -hmm. until they're mm -hmm. all basically the same thing. Um, and it's so effective at doing that that I did not care to eat anything for hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah one of the underlying <clears throat> visual and like dialogue <clears throat> motifs of the film is that food is just equal to shit is just equal to come is just equal to blood so if you're sitting there eating food you're like yeah. i don't enjoy this yeah. i'm not enjoying this at all no. yeah. although i yeah. thought one of, yeah that was one of my favorite dialogue payoffs is because uh i would say it's fair to characterize gambone's issue as like no amount of money. He's very Tony Soprano and in some ways almost more brutal than Tony Soprano, more obnoxious, certainly. But he uh, 
he's upset that no no success in the mob world and no amount of money will actually make him he'll always feel inferior in some way and not like sophisticated or approved by society and he's mm-hmm. obsessed with um presenting himself as artistically knowledgeable and like sophisticated about food while vomiting and shitting on people. <laughs> so it's, it's that kind of juxtaposition. And one of my favorite payoffs is he's just never not giving a monologue about what's important about specific rules of food. Mm-hmm. And then in the last scene, when everything's from his point of view, gone to shit, cause Georgina's cheated on him and his uh, mob is sort of at odds with him in that moment. He goes, who gives a shit? It all comes out as shit anyway, doesn't it? So, Mm -hmm. like, he also doesn't even care about food or recognizes that no matter how sophisticated your palate or the menu, you're just going to condense it into shit. Like, who cares? Yeah, I I don't... Mm -hmm. I get the impression that he never really had a specific inclination towards food or being a restaurateur. It's just what he happens to buy into. Or thinks yep. or he's like that's classy. I'll do right. That. He think, <laughs> yeah. He thinks he thinks it's classy. So he bought a steak in like a classy restaurant, and immediately it's just a, mm-hmm. a fucking hideous ogre. <laughs> have you guys uh, have you guys seen either any uh, other Peter Greenaway uh, films? No. Like Prospero's books, The Pillow Book. Mm-hmm. They no. Uh, real. I wouldn't. I mean, some would put calm avant garde. Do they make you uh, feel a similar way? Is that his thing? Well, I mean, yeah, there's uh, I wouldn't common call this film themes and formal yeah. attitudes, uh, speaking namely of everything as like a Swiftian kind of caricature of something that is happening relevant in British society at the time, mm-hmm. or a reflection on something. Uh, it's funny that you guys talked about, uh, like, he has that line, uh, Gambon has that line where he talks about... Uh, everything just turns into shit uh it's all going the same way anyway because <clears throat> the way this film was always described I, the first time i watched this film was in film school and I the way it. it was taught <laughs> I fucking uh, knew it. yeah yeah of course uh because i want to go watch this film no but I'm, that's I'm, a good um I was raised on a farm in a different way fuck? that's an amazing encapsulation is it's the kind of film you would watch in film school it really is. Yeah, absolutely. Because we've um, described the disgusting parts, but I want to, and I'm sorry I to interrupt and you should go, but I just want to say to people who have no idea what we're talking about, it's also operatic and very artistic and painterly. It's right. like the combination of those things. The way it was staged, I was actually very surprised to find out that it was not adapted from the stage. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was I mean, that's play. how yeah. he, he does that. That's Greenaway's not like when I was talking about his formal attitudes, like he's very Brechtian. He's very like breaking the fourth wall, the, you know, pup, the kids who's a soprano who sings while he washes dishes. It's got this weird feeling of like, wait, is this like Les Mis? Like what's going on here? Mm-hmm. But no one acknowledges it yet. At the same time, you're supposed to believe it's a part of the diegesis of the film yet at the same time, it's, you can't, avoid the fact that it's clearly like a mouthpiece of the director slash writer talking as a like basically using that character as a vessel to talk directly to you um it's like you can't buy a greek chorus as characters you only conceive of them as yeah they're Everyone is both inside Although and outside Although it was very interesting to me how the dishwasher boy, who the whole time does seem like an artistic flourish, who is there to mm-hmm. sing to the camera, in mm-hmm. Act 3 suddenly becomes like a real boy and character, they torture yeah. him and you're actually mm-hmm. like, fuck, now he's real and he's being tortured. That's bad he, too. Yeah, That's and we can talk about that. I, ta- I can talk about how it was taught to me. Sure. Or how people, critics wrote about it. Which is still available online and yeah, stuff. People still have that kind of thing. That'd be very interesting jumping off point, I think. Yeah, like uh, puppet. Like, there's a reason he had to, has like a Sid Vicious haircut. You know, like there's a reason that he's a young child. Um, everyone is a symbol in this movie, and the one thing that I kind of grabbed, which I know, like the director would probably have problems with this, and probably does. Uh, like the one to one acknowledgement of like allegory to real life mm-hmm. um as these as all of these characters as symbols but here we go i mean i think it's just a 
you can't avoid that they are. So this movie is more or less about England during the Thatcher years. Yeah. Oh, so there's and probably so a bunch of Thatcher, specific satirical references that I don't scan. Kind I don't, of, I'm yeah. Sure, I'm sure that yeah. I'm sure that gigantic painting in the back means something. That stuff like that <laughs> right. means stuff in that way. And the fact but, that it's uh, moved like, from the restaurant to the dumpster by the end of the movie. Yeah. He swaps, he more swaps it how, out for a different one. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> it's more of how Greenaway considers tyranny, and he thought of t- Thatcher as a tyrant, and therefore he's Albert. Or yeah. That's Albert. She is the thief. The cook and his, like the commoners. His wife is Mother England. And her lover is like this intellectual class. And that's like the politics of what was going on at the time. And is the boy um, literally like the punk scene or media? What is the boy? Represents the youth of the next culture, which is why they're identified. Which at that time was Britpunk. Was yeah. punks. Yeah, you know, and stuff like that. So, and this was made in 1989. Obviously, it's like probably a decade in remove and truly to when these things were really happening. But he likes to, Greenaway loves to talk about tyranny. Um, And so he does the satire about sometimes democracies elect of fucking boorish kind of tyrant into office. And, uh... All, yeah, it's funny. I can all see I know why... is because I love Elvis Costello and certain other British right. artists. I don't know much about Thatcher, but I just know th- from the art of people right. I trust that I get the impression she was like their Trump of that time. <laughs> like she said, sounds exactly. Really bad. I think sounds like I she think sucked. I <laughs> almost immediately as I read the email, I was like, I know why they sent this one to us because Brexit is one. happening and all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And st- yeah. There's a lot of that kind of, and I, I'm not. I'm by no means a scholar of, you know, English politics. I'm woefully like ignorant of British politics. I'm kind of reading bad. these things yeah. as a as I read the review of the film. I know I that they're having just... a populist problem like we are, but I don't know the details. Right. Yeah. Um, and I have my responses to the filmmaking and to the point behind the filmmaking, but there's something I want. I thought you guys picked up that was kind of interesting. Uh, my viewing of this, which I never really heard in film school, is... You notice how everything moves left to right, or mm-hmm. at least at the Hollandaise, or Hollandaise, the... A vast preponderance of shots are dollies left or right through a wall. Right. That's and very And if you remember present. the geography of most of the film, it goes kitchen, dining room, left to right, bathroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the very center well, is car park Albert. on the very left. And he's the guy who's saying stuff like it's all the same at the end because he's in the center of it all. If you notice on the left and left side of like our little top over, like looking down at the kind of f- floor plan of this, mm-hmm. you have on the left side the intellectual Michael mm-hmm. and Georgina who's you know flirting with that, but she's right ne- she's right on the side of um, Albert uh, Albert's hands. They start fucking in the bathroom, mm-hmm. but then they quickly move into the kitchen, and that's kind of ultimately where they're caught. Now, I think that that has something to do with, like, you're supposed to read this as kind of a dollhouse digestive track. So when it moves left or it moves right, I think that's Greenaway trying to nod to us where the direction of things are going. Are they getting eaten or are they getting regurgitated? Now, that's a lofty hmm. kind of... Acknowledgement of that use of that allegory. But it's interesting to think as of like the front doors of a restaurant as like the mouth and then the, the dining ma- yeah. room where everyone's eating as the tea stomach. And then like the kid yeah, and then the back area with the dumpsters as like the butthole of the restaurant. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now I think uh, I think the filmmaking in this movie is lazy. I did not like it when I watched it. I have it issues first. with this movie. Yes. I don't <laughs> like this. I think the dollies like people talk about how it like masterfully moves left to right and does this stuff. I just see left and right movements, wide shots shot down right the tube. It's kind of uninspired in terms of shot selection. Screen direction is clear, but it's very rudimentary. Like you'd know where everyone is, but it's not like doing anything. But with did it either of you have the thought, said. I bet this movie is important to Wes Anderson? <sighs> kind of. In the same way that I think that French New Wave was <clears throat> important to him I, in the Dollhouse I mean, with the title era. cards on the menus and everything and the yeah, exactly. types yeah, that's of true. score, it just felt very 
like it's inspired had, Wes Anderson. I had two thoughts mm-hmm. r- related to that. One it, uh, in the, in the left to right movement, setting it up as like a digestive tract or just where like Albert primarily lives in the center in in the place that's like colored red to the point where he and Helen mm-hmm. Mirren's costumes literally change as Her they walk. cigarette from turns red. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, like the, the red lighting is so harsh, uh, in, in there. Um, and it's just it's just the area where things are consumed, um, mm-hmm. and Albert goes to look for her in the bathroom. He never goes to look for her in the kitchen. So it's like right. I, I took that to be like Albert, and the only time he's the only times he is ever in the kitchen, he's throwing a tantrum and destroying shit. So it's yeah. like Albert is not interested in creating things. He's only mm-hmm. interested in consuming them and shitting them out. And the chef, I think, by the end, uh, is intentionally idealized or seems, I feel like he's the harbinger of integrity in the system. And I want to yeah. get into what that means. But first, I feel or the most urgent question to me about this whole movie that I've been dying to ask you guys is, did you think Michael deserved, I don't, or I don't even mean like deserved the love of Helen Mirren, but like, is Michael good or is he foolish too? I didn't understand what the director was presenting because mm. Michael is basically presented as better than Michael Gambone because Michael Gambone never shuts up and he never speaks. And mm. Michael Gambone is a boor trying to be classy and he quietly imbibes sophisticated books and actually appreciates fine food or whatever. But with my modern eyes, I find that silly too. Like, why would you think he's good just because he reads books and eats at fancy restaurants? That's, but I'm wondering if allegorically, is he like, Abe, you were bringing up that he represents the intellectual class. Do you know what Greenway thought about the intellectual class based on this? I do because I think it's in all of his movies. And (laughs) I, yeah, teacher said, I I happen to disagree with him, but I want Tom to speak because we brought him on for this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, here's what I got from Michael. I think, I mean, and they make a point like they don't even know, they don't even speak to each other. And there's, there's like a meta moment when they're finally in one of, uh, the, the cook's pantries, the pheasant Um, room, I believe. Yes. (laughs) Um, and she, she, Helen Mirren starts talking about like movies where the main character doesn't speak for the first third. And it's like, that's exactly what's happened in this film. Um, And then he says, that's me. And you're like, we know, right? (laughs) you don't have to say it. Well, and then, you know, they're, they're introduced to each other because Michael Gambon in one of his tantrums drags him over to the table and forces him to, to interact so that's like that's the first time that he and Helen Mirren actually speak. Like they've just been meeting up and having a physical relationship until that point. Um, and then in the in the pheasant room, he says he makes some comment about how he enjoyed those movies where the protagonist doesn't speak, and then the protagonist ruined it by speaking because he immediately became boring. And I think that's Michael's problem. Yes, because absolutely, he is. He does have like he he has more dignity than Albert has for sure. But um, he is kind of foolish because he never thinks about, he never seems to think about the consequences of what he's doing because Albert is. Um, it's crazy how unscared he is until it right. finally happens. Like, yeah. Al- Albert is a terrifying man that inflicts violence on people for very little reason. Yeah. And he does it in front of everybody in this restaurant. And he fucks his wife in the bathroom while he's eating. Ru- right. Yeah. So it's like, and he's like, we'll hide out at my book depository. They'll never find us there. And he finds them there immediately. It's like, like what? The one you work at? That's the yeah. main place you're associated with? Right. So it's, I and think. And they order takeout from the same restaurant. There are no other restaurants in this city. Like, right. I just have to stress they're in hiding at the book depository, fearing for their lives. And yeah. they have the wait staff of that restaurant deliver them food from uh, that restaurant. That, that wasn't, that wasn't them. Richard sent it. The cook sent it. That's true. But I just saw yeah. all around, like, the community do- seems to have too they were, little fear. <laughs> right. They were being, they, yeah, I, to the, the answer to that question is I think Michael is foolish. I think he thinks the fact that he is intellectual means that he's going to come out ahead of Albert. And it's, that's just not true. 
because yeah. <laughs> Albert's uh, this violent terror of a man. I th- I personally <laughs> think that it's kind of excusable uh, Greenaway's version of like them being dummies and getting caught because I think his bolder thought is that uh, tyranny is everywhere, so it doesn't really matter where you hide; mm-hmm. it will find a way to get you. That's but true. I don't know if that's necessarily earned. That's one thing. I think more more importantly, let's back up and go to that scene where you're talking about scene. His, like he saw a movie once where the main character didn't speak for 30 minutes. If you remember, that's his answer to Georgina's question why he isn't married. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, He's I just want you to... philosophical dude. ...doesn't care about learning. He doesn't care about... He, he, he loves the dignity of it all, as I think that was well said by Tom. He loves the innocence of things that are untouched. But the second that actually an intellectual who's only hid inside his books, the moment that you actually see it practically used in the real world, it ruins it for you. I think that that is a backward kind of thinking. So either, either that's what Greenaway's doing and he's saying he's a fool. I would say that that would be true except for the fact that he literally martyrs him. Well, but that's what I was going to ask, because he chokes to death on the title page of a book about the French Revolution. Right. Is that, I mean, obviously, that's my, I will say my underlying, I actually find the film interesting and like it, but my underlying negative point, if there was anything, was that the insights are heightened through style style, and like the insights right. are refined to a uh, an operatic degree, but mm-hmm. the insights themselves are straightforward. Like there are so many masterful uh, moments in this film that say, did you ever notice that eating, the satisfaction of eating is kind of like the satisfaction of sexual contact? And I'm like, yes, but it's not as interesting as you seem to think that is by how no. much you obsess about that fact. And I'm like, yeah, no. that's true. Okay. <laughs> but I think so. It makes me wonder because the symbolism is kind of like arch, in my opinion, and very blocky and simple. If the intellectual class chokes to death on the French Revolution, that's a symbol, right? That's got to be a statement about British politics. Right. It's, yeah. He was he was he was he was fed to death in his tower of books. Like he's literally in a tower, a fort of books. My books. Um, my, my books. books. <laughs> I had he all would, the time in the world. Now it's not fair. It's not fair. <laughs> um, he was he was fed to death in his tower of books by a boorish guy who doesn't read. So I think part of that statement is that power doesn't discriminate in that manner. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like in American terms, it would almost be like, you're right. You are smarter than the Trumpers, but the Trumpers are more likely to shoot you in the face. So they might exactly. win. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That is a, definitely a parallel. Yeah. Uh, I, my problem with the movie is that he paints this picture, if you believe the latter of what I was saying before, he's painting this picture that intellectuals are heroes saving Mother England, and the commoner has like got their back when tyrants come to power. You know, like That's what we have on display here, correct? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah that's and very that, interesting. Yeah, the chef is, without any obvious plot-driven like thing to he's gain, like, he's you constantly supporting Michael and Helen being together. Yeah, and that may be true in some instances, but it also may all be conjecture. Like, that may just be Greenaway justifying his intellectual existence to everyone. And the fact that he has openly said multiple times in interviews and just with his movies, obviously the guy who makes these kinds of movies would say this kind of shit. Like, if you don't get it, well, fuck off. (laughs) You know, like, it's like, I don't care. I'm not making it for you. So it's an exclusive kind of like elitism that I don't like. And maybe he isn't that man, but he definitely walks and talks like that guy. And it's undoubtable that tyranny ruins everything for any, for everyone. So the 
point subject of what he's saying is interesting to that regard but i get less that the union between intellectuals and the working class is like about equality and more just the lifting up of intellectualism yeah that's that's something that the working class will go out of its way to assist in any way because even if it's just cuckolding Mm -hmm. the tyrant it's for the purpose of knowledge and the books the food and everything are ruined by uh gambon's uh gambon's bumbling and crassness but like, what does that mean? Like, what what are you saying is the answer? I don't understand. Well, what yeah, question I guess I'm so suspicious now at this time in my life of anyone saying that the way out of this mess we're in is to let the uh, sophisticated intellectual class lead us. That when I see a film that has that message, it's hard for me to wonder if the director means that or are, are being sarcastic. I think mm-hmm. he means it. I think that actually is the symbolism. And I think that may be more true to a, you know, 1970s uh, kind of England mm-hmm. than it would be necessarily of a, you know, 2010s America. Obviously, not all points are equal. No, right. but definitely, definitely the last shot of the film um, when Helen Mirren, who is also an intellectual, um, has essentially led a revolution against Michael Gambon and she has everybody's behind her. Um, the only, even like Siren Hines and like some of Michael Gambon's guys are, are, are mm. with her. The ones uh, he's insulted recently have switched sides. Yeah, yeah. correct. Yeah, the, the only one who does it is Tim Roth and they just carry him right. out. <laughs> which, right. in, love, in, in, which is very I, funny when that happens. The sous chef, because Tim Roth is genuinely, <laughs> yeah, because is. of his sheer depravity, is frightening throughout the film because he yeah. would do anything to anyone at any time for any reason. He does whatever but Gambon tells him to, yeah. That moment, you realize he's a small guy, though, because yeah. one of the sous chefs <laughs> just, just uh, crooks, crooks their arm under his crotch and like picks him up like a child and carries him yeah. out. Just carries him like, off. I'm dying while he's here. Yeah. I'm fucking dying here. Yeah, it's uh, um, he's it's definitely smacks fair. of like he smacks of like the SS. He takes pleasure in like torturing the child well he's so well he's so cold about it like he it's not necessarily that he takes pleasure but yeah i think there is an ss indictment there it's just because he just dispassionately takes his orders and they're terrible well and the thing that i think does show a lot of rhetorical skill is like greenway will bring up the specter of something and because things are so horrible you'll expect it even things that don't happen like he taught he there's a whole scene where he describes prairie oysters in detail and then when they're torturing Michael, he says it's your chance to try prairie oysters. And you really, as a viewer, think he's gonna Tim Roth is about to bite this guy's balls off. That's yeah, what we're he, gonna watch. And then he mm-hmm. he goes like, Should I do that? And he goes, No, I was just being metaphorical. Right. And you're like, but he would have. That's what's crazy yeah, about but Tim he Roth. Was, he was gonna do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but anyways, yeah. my my point is the the last shot of the film is um Helen Mirren, the intellectual, has led this uprising of the common folk against Michael Gambon, the t- uh, the, the the tyrant. And she shoots him in the face, and the very last word of the film is she says "cannibal" as she shoots him. So it's like it's it it's it's an indictment of that kind of populism, that like populist boor, like it's all, all, all like all your power comes from cannibalizing people and cannibalizing right. things. Like right. you don't, and the fact that he's never in the kitchen, he's just eating. Like he doesn't create anything; he just takes what other people do. And uses it yeah. to further okay, his and own maybe wealth I'm and being power. too strict with now the allegorical aspect, but it does invite that kind of interpretation. Uh, it's interesting to me, though, that he's not choosing to eat Michael, even though he, in his rage, said he would like to. Uh, he's being forced to, so I wonder if mm-hmm. there's some reference there to the fact of, like, I don't know if that's some, like, the wire wisdom. Like, you know, in the end, the boorish guy is just doing what he does because he's propelled by these forces, and that's that. Like, this will never be repaired. I don't know, but mm-hmm. it's just interesting to me that I feel like if the allegory were clearly, like, one-to-one... Gambon would have chosen to eat Michael, which sounds outlandish, but... Well, I guess in Titus Andronicus, they also don't know they're eating their kids. 
What about in that South Park episode? No, he doesn't know either. He doesn't know either, yeah. Scott Tennerman. Yeah. <laughs> Scott Tennerman does not know. Or in Game of Thrones. In it's Game like Thrones, a yeah. it's like a thing. We, we oh, love, like, I fell off gotcha. season three. Is there a feeding family members to someone moment? There yeah. is. Jesus. Uh, Arya feeds the phrase lot. to Walter Frey. <laughs> mm-hmm. Eating people and pies and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is just straight up his body's on the table, and he's been cooked like a pig. It yeah. is. It is and, grotesque. And awful. just goes straight with fight with knife and fork and just like cuts off a little slice of turkey. And I thought uh, that was one of the best payoffs of the left, right? So like I'll admit that I also found moments where I thought this director thinks he's better than he is with the left and right dolly shit. I was like, mm-hmm. we get it. You can dolly left and right and have the actors block in that direction. But uh I have to admit, I felt that that strategy was highly paid off in the fact that the, they knew the real climax is the moment where you see a cooked human body about to be eaten. Mm-hmm. And how do they show it? The slowest left to right dolly we've had so far. Or actually right to left, because it goes from his feet to his head. But it's like mm-hmm. an excruciatingly slow dolly over the entire uh-huh. cooked body. Yeah. And that's yeah. a good payoff if you're going to stick to that strategy so much. It, I hated <laughs> it, you guys. I hated uh, watching it. But that's... I don't hate it like this is a bad film. But it's mm. fucking it's rough. It's very intense. It took me back to my... 16th birthday party when I had all my friends over and, and you, had, so- you had a cooked body no someone <laughs> said they had heard Requiem for a Dream was really good and my had, dad had uh, it on DVD and I was had seen it and I was like it is very good I really don't want to watch it at the birthday party and this person was very high pressure we eventually watched it and it was supposed to be a sleepover but instead right after the movie ended there were like four minutes of silence and then it, one by one everyone was like hey I'm just gonna hit it I just feel like being home with my mom you know like, I was yeah. just gonna go home. And that I was, was like, that, you ruined my birthday party, Requiem. <laughs> that, was, that was my reaction at the end of this movie. I I watched it on Amazon Prime, and after the credits rolled, like I I stopped the movie and just sat there looking at the the Amazon menu screen for about three or four minutes. <laughs> just you called just, your mom. <laughs> just sat yeah, there. that's uh that I then in that regard i think greenaway's a success i think that's what he wanted to do so it's a success yeah yeah i mean there's other films i love that make me feel that way at points like clockwork orange is there's hard moments but yeah i mean yeah there's something to be said about the you know there's i i think i used the word swifty in earlier like like he's reducing people to representative types in order to make bigger points and i think that if that's effective, that's all you needed to do. I just, maybe I'm just a bumpkin or something. I just get bored because I, I'm, I don't fear slower meditative films. I've watched, I fucking watched a seven hour film before and like, you know, like, oh, look at this guy don't, watching his yeah, seven Look hour. at me. Look at me. Uh, that's you know, become no, it's so just meaningless like, now I, that there's series that are hundreds yeah, of hours long. That that's true. That's true. Thing, yeah. But like, and it was not like a, it wasn't like a series though. You know, is, yeah, is my, my point is that like, about? yeah, yeah, yeah. Bellatars. Uh, <laughs> my point is that like, I'm don't usually go away from like meditative films, but there's nothing to really meditate in this movie after a while, other than like, obviously the amazing performance. Uh, I mean, he steals the movie, but I feel like the bookkeeper just being fed to the book you know like constantly i'm like yeah i get it yeah this is an allegory yep yep well also it's every night she's gonna cheat on him michael gambone will come where they are he won't catch them then on the last night he will and something horrible will happen like you know what's gonna happen and in that way it like again i just can't it felt it really to me felt like titus andronicus which if you could tell no listeners is uh william shakespeare's least liked play i do like it there's a really good movie version with anthony hopkins by julie tamar but um it is also about like rape and feeding people each other's children and shit and uh it is also this simple and i almost wonder if he was somewhat inspired because this movie feels like 
watching people like like little watching little wind up toys go around a track like they only do what they're gonna do right they just do iterations this movie is like it's like a beautiful illustration on a baseball bat you know what i mean yeah that's well said (laughs) an inch away from smashing you in the face oh it smashes you in the face (laughs) its it's goal is to smash it is it is it is beating you but it looks really pretty while it's doing it. Yeah, because yeah, Tom, like, wow. I think you were talking about the sheer number of lines Michael Gambon has, yeah, which lends a special kind of I'd love for you to unpack that is like, this guy is not just like, oh, he's bad because he hurts people. He's obnoxious in a way that I've rarely experienced in film. I never wanted someone to die more than this guy. Like you, yeah. Talk about how hateful he, he is. How he never shuts up. For the first, I think until we get to that scene where it's it's Michael and Georgina in the pheasant room, Michael Gambon does not stop speaking, even when he's not off, even when he's not on screen. Um, the film starts with them out in the car park, you know, force feeding dog shit to that guy, and he's just talking the entire time, and he continues to talk like every thought that comes into his head, he just says. So it's like this rambling dial. It's it's. The, the movie is almost a rambling two-hour monologue because Gambin so yeah. rarely stops Dominates speaking. Dominates real. Yeah. It's like yeah. listening to him talk continuously throughout the duration of the film while yeah. other people move around him mostly. Yeah. And it's he doesn't keep any... He's 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 tactless. He, keep, he doesn't keep any thought to himself. He doesn't let any thought develop in his mind. He just spits it out as, as as underformed as it is and it's it's always like yeah. he, he's constantly contradicting himself because of it that's he's also mm-hmm. a hypocrite he's constant like yeah. one of the staples of his monologue is telling other people to shut up because they don't know what they're talking about it's yeah, and he doesn't know what he's talking about yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's, he, he like yeah, in, the, in favorite, the same sentence he'll he'll contradict himself uh, my go ahead, absolute Abe. favorite uh, <clears throat> part of the movie is the, when he's silenced. Um, not the ending, obviously. That's like what we're all leading to. But when that uh, th- that woman who like uh, had sex with I don't know who that guy was. I forget his name, but he was like uh, he was a guest at dinner. Mr. Mm-hmm. And Fitch. Then he, yeah, Mr. Yeah, Fitch. Okay. Yeah, by Fitch. the way, Easter egg. Mr. Fitch, played by Ian Dury who I grew up on. Incredible musician. I highly recommend the Enduri and the Blockheads. They were, <laughs> and I don't know if this feeds into the narrative, but I have to suspect it's why he was cast. Ian Dury was a really like misfit punk icon in Britain at this time. Mm. Like mm. a not fit That's in, funny. fuck the establishment type musician. And he yeah. kind of plays the establishment in this Right, uh, I think it's a tongue in cheek. Like, why would like yeah. look? It's Ian Dury. That's weird that that would be him. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, yeah, it's like Ginsburg for president kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's um, yeah, yeah. So in that scene where they're fucking outside in the alley, and she witnesses the uh, infidelity mm-hmm. of Georgina and Michael. Uh, and then we flash forward to a few other scenes and the, the fork scene where he just stabs her in the face with a fork. <laughs> yep. She straight up tells him, your wife's been sleeping on you with this fucking guy. And mm-hmm. th- what the audience has been thinking, how do you not know that? Like, it's fucking obvious, right. dude. It's because yeah. he's, he's deluded in his own. Because he's yeah. dumb. <laughs> like, he's and, so, yeah. Uh, and Gambon has this, like, sit down where he like sits down, he eats like he puts like a butter on like a cracker or something like that or on a biscuit and then he, he takes a bite, tosses it, stares kind of almost close to camera lens mm-hmm. and like you can just see the inner workings and then he's like, I gotta go to the loo and then continues his like bumbling around where he at one point pulls like uh the tablecloth from another table and like throws something at another patron like he's back in form but there's this moment of actual like like almost a cry for help that he suppresses 
in a single silent moment of just looking past camera that is some of the finest acting in this movie, <laughs> yeah. if not sure. in Gambon's like entire performal, uh, performance in mo- multiple movies throughout his life. It's <laughs> so visceral. And in that, I have, you know, hats off to everyone who's a part of that. Uh, I think that that's great. That's all I have to say about that sure. one. Uh, I I feel like we'd be remiss not to go into the color a little bit because the other notable thing about the film, mm-hmm. um, besides the uh, I love the dude with the beer gut who's constantly only making sauce. Yeah, he's Ooh. a saucier. Oh, he's the, the shirtless dude that's like a random pirate in the back yeah. making sauce. Yeah, Gambone specifically <laughs> calls him "you skinny little rat," and I'm like, this is. What? The, this dude's carrying a keg around. Right. You skinny little rat. But, he's, um, he's he's the fattest man in the movie. Exactly. <laughs> I think aside from him, the most notable thing about the film is the color palette, mm-hmm. uh, in the sense that, and since we're since we're in allegorical territory, I have to ask, like, what did you guys get out of it? The main thing, my main thought was that a statement on how people are and classes i guess now that different characters represent whole classes are a product of the context of their environment because the main trick seems to be the environment bleeding into them um and then i also saw that like for whatever reason blue was the color of downfall anytime someone was about to get really fucked over or their fortunes Mm. go from high to very low we were blue other than that, I'm wondering uh, what you guys picked up because I feel like there has to be more than that that I missed. Well, well, obviously there's the, the whole monologue that Richard gives that black is death because oh yeah, he black charges black I, like yeah black food like caviar mm-hmm. and such are the, they're the most expensive because his theory personal theory is that it, it's like you're eating death whenever you come into his restaurant things like caviar. Or uh, black truffle was the black truffles or whatnot because it reminds you of eating death. And then other than that, you have uh, the colors obviously of red and green. Green representing the kitchen itself, and red representing the where all the patrons sit. And as we talked about, the digestive tract would be ultimately be represented by the stomach. So those are the four colors at play. Well, I also noticed uh, amber. the like khaki brown amber color when they're make I mean Michael dresses in khaki which makes him stand out and also whenever they're making love in uh, the kitchen true. no matter what color their room they're in is they're in brown light so that's the thing and I think brown is just Michael's color yeah personally or, and the uh, yeah. the bathrooms are surgical white yeah right. it's white that's true that's true I, I don't um, I don't really know what that means well I also <laughs> noticed the color of the sash that Michael Gambone wears changes to match his environment everyone's and, costume changes to match yes, their environment yeah. even on the same day as they trans like there's even one time they clearly hit a cut because right. as they walk into the kitchen it's supposed to be continuous but they change from red clothes to green clothes mm-hmm. yeah and again I feel like the only thing I can read that as, which is a fine reading, I think, is that these things are all affected by the context that they're occurring within, which is true. Right. Mm-hmm. But it makes me like my brain itch for like, is there something more than that or is that it? Am I good? Did I get it? Is that right? <laughs> you know? Right. Um, I, yeah, I don't, I don't, like I said, I don't know what the, the, the bathrooms being surgical white means, uh, if unless it's, yeah. unless it's a visual contradiction. Like or the idea of, right, look how hard we try to make the spaces where we shit and piss seem the cleanest because we don't want to think about it. Yeah, and then, like, by contrast, the kitchen looks like a factory. Right. Like, it's very industri- yeah. industrial looking. I, I'm <laughs> sure there's theorists that have it, but if it... My I, yeah, personal view Hardy on this has an opinion because he is the person who wanted us to watch this. And I'm like, I bet he's going to write with his theory. And I bet it's <clears> in depth. My <laughs> personal theory about symbology, especially with things like color or visual, like obviousness, is that if it isn't clear within thinking about it for like five minutes, then it's not doing its job. Um, I right, think that's then it one was, of those it things was a that choice just simple. for you. Yeah. Yeah. You, you should ask, you should be able to find the question to ask. And then that question goes, Oh, and then that me, Oh, of course that's what they're doing. Should be sure. the story. But of I would also symbology. argue that 
uh, you are allowed to make choices just for flair and yes. vibe. And if he, I said think that's that, what's happening. Like if he said, "Oh, it, no, it was just to enhance the vibe." That's a legitimate. Yeah answer i think that is absolutely right that's but totally legitimate if you're looking for color play that makes sense like mathematically punch drunk loves the place to go it's it's mind-blowing <laughs> i beg to differ <laughs> really where would you go you go Raku? Or... yeah 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 <laughs> go to our youtube channel uh <laughs> yeah so uh oh you'd go wedding singer of course yeah, <laughs> no, well, yeah just... adam sandler's got the color game locked down dude <laughs> Yeah, blue suits and everything. Um, yeah. yeah, it's. I really think that it's just. Uh, it's one of those stylistic choices that makes everything on a, like just from an aesthetic point of view look great. Right. And that's fine. That's a part of the sensual experience of enjoying yeah. a film. And when they when they feed him Michael, the entire the restaurant area, which is normally red, is entirely blacked out. Yeah. Because right. black yeah. is the color of death, and yeah. I just really loved the whoever played Richard. Like I love that they cast a dude whose French accent is very thick. And like, so thick, yeah. English is clearly his second second language, and like when he's in the final moment where she's trying to convince him to cook Michael, I loved watching. I realized I missed that in film is watching the actor evince his character's like emotions and goals also through thinking of the words he wants you know what i mean mm -hmm. i don't know yeah. it's a classic actor's exercise that like one of the main things you're trying to capture is the fact that you don't know the lines already and you're tr you're formulating these words for the first time in this moment and it's such an interesting almost advantage to have an excellent grasp of the english language but have it not be your innate first language because you are so natural by like by definition. I don't know. It's almost like Andre the Giant and Princess Bride. He can't not seem natural because he's just going to say what he says. You know what I mean? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I just really enjoyed Richard a lot, especially when he finally has a scene with Helen Mirren that humorously ends with her operatically just like crying and rolling around on the counter in a very interesting way. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, I also wanted to ask before we run out of time, mm -hmm. because I got to admit, I wasn't, I was thinking of it symbolically, but not satirically, allegorically. And that's opened up a bunch of like, oh, well, if we're going down that road, what about the trucks of food that Michael Gambon brings? One is fish based and one is pork based. And, and they're both rotten. And the chef doesn't trust his taste in ingredients, so he refuses to take them, but Michael Gambone refuses to lose face by returning the trucks, so they just sit in the car park and rot, and our heroes end up having to escape by riding naked in the rotted, desiccated pork truck, which honestly was like one of the toughest parts for me because of my imagining yeah. of how the smell would be. That was foul. Yeah, yeah that was yeah, one of the one of the movie's many foul moments. Yeah. yeah. And you know that the car, it's like, they're not tied down. They're, they're you know, yeah. driving somewhere. He hold, they're he, well, he, he, you they're see, touching maggots and stuff. Oh, yeah. You see Michael hold on to the, the pig's head on the ceiling to steady himself as they're yeah. driving. You can only steady <laughs> yourself by holding on to a pig corpse um, yeah. that has been rotting in a parking lot for several weeks. Putrefying. <laughs> yeah. yeah. For a, a week. But I guess my question was, like, if this were about American politics and one truck was filled with donkey meat and one truck was filled with elephant meat, I would get it. Is there anything like that? Is it like the fish truck is on the right of frame, so it represents the Tories and the, the I think truck it's on in, the left is the Labor Party or anything like that? I think it's Albert's nod to it when he has that monologue about how, like, uh, Hitler and Mussolini and all of these tyrants that uh had to adopt other cultures because their like their grasp of dominance would extend into other cultures mm -hmm. that they would always like seafood great uh, great generals kind. he said yeah great whether generals. it's true or not he claims yeah. hitler and napoleon and caesar all love seafood yeah right and so uh, that's why and churchill and Churchill. Yeah, and Churchill. And we, that's uh, interesting then because the seafood truck is on the right. And I do know that that spectrum is still symbolically the same in England. Like conservative politics are to the right. Progressive politics are to the left. Yeah, I think it's I more to do with import-export and like Mother England versus um, 
I'm not saying that like it's got a xenophobic kind of uh, attribute, but it's just like here's our homestead on one truck. This is my theory, yeah. and then here's our import export, more mostly the importation of uh, goods from other countries, and everything is becoming rotten by the fact that a tyrant. So it's more of like here's the economy. It's like the inefficiency of the system lets valuable yeah. materials yeah. rot. Yeah, the and they yeah. they get in the pig truck because the pig truck is more like Abe was saying, like this is like the the salt of the earth. This is like our yeah. country stuff, and then like yeah, it's 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 rotten because of pride, and it's both. It's not just Albert's pride; it's also Richard's pride that made it sit there and rot. Yeah, and it's um, like it's to escape true. from the tyranny of the populism. Mother England has to humble herself. She'll, mm-hmm. She will have to ride naked in a rotting pig truck. Yeah, it's just such literally an outlandish naked, yeah. Yeah. symbol. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Maybe. It reminds Maybe. me of like Lions all... of King of the Hill where he goes to buy art and they're like, what about Ronald Reagan shitting on the American flag? It's very strong. It's very striking and mythological. If you can say anything about Peter Greenway, he is impactful and he takes big swings and he's like, he says what he wants to say as hard as he can say it. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's speaking of that. There's one other thing that I just wanted to quickly mention is we, we, we started off the podcast by talking about pup, the, the, the blonde, the, the platinum blonde, yes. Sid vicious hair, who is fed buttons by force, including his own belly button, and including his own belly button. Yeah. Um. <laughs> anyway, go on. <laughs> uh, he's he's little Givroach from Les Misérables. No, oh. <laughs> he's oh. in the, like they have they have all the French Revolution uh, imagery. Yeah, he's catch little, that. He's little Givroach. Wait, the actor? <laughs> no, but like that's the character. That's the character. Oh, yeah, I don't. I'm very unfamiliar <laughs> with Les Mis, other than having read the book, which means I am familiar with it, but not the music part. Mm-hmm. Is he okay? So he's literally a, like a crossover character from the Les Mis universe. No, no, he's not literally, but okay. it's like I think I think he is meant to invoke that character or the idea right. of that character. Well, also, it's interesting that because I have subtitles on when I watch stuff for this show, mm-hmm. his song that is almost unintelligible because he's doing that operatic child falsetto. Uh, and mm-hmm. stretching the words out long. But if you read the lyrics, it's one of those classic, really brutal, like medieval Gothic, uh, you know, it's a, hymns. It's a Bible verse. It's basically saying, God, please like be really hard on me so that I mm-hmm. can be pure enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. Like I understand mm-hmm. that to receive your grace, you're going to have to really fuck me up. <laughs> you have to really beat the shit out of me, God. Yeah. And so I, I came to take his, his repeated refrain song as like the director's message about the film is like, I am actually trying to help. I want you to know that I believe that, brutality and pulling no punches when we're talking about politics and and how we treat each other is helpful i think it's gonna help but here you go here's a shit sandwich eat it so we can talk about why do we keep producing shit sandwiches huh um, <laughs> eat it so we can discuss how shitty it tastes <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. but it, the palate. but i believe yeah. that he thinks that that would be helpful uh i get the impression from the film that he's like trying to help out through satire in the swiftian way yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'd say that that's fair. Yeah, and I think the kid speaks to that. But I thought it was so interesting what Abe brought up about his white spiky hair possibly being a Sid Vicious thing as well. Given that it's yeah, that's the British I didn't read that 80s. anywhere, so I can't verify if it's a different person. That's just what it looked like to me. Yeah, I, and I think it's he's meant, like I said, in invoking the same idea of the character of Gavroche from uh Les Rob is that he's meant to represent the the youth of Britain the youth and the working class mm-hmm. and yeah he's obviously not the punk attitude because no he's kinda no just he just directions. does what he's told. he's like Kenneth yeah. from 30 Rock yeah <laughs> but I think it's I think that that's Greenaway looking at uh the youth and saying like this is the cost of our decisions that we're making politically mm-hmm. is that they're gonna get fucked up 
because of shit that we're doing to them and force feeding them this nonsense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I don't, it's probably a lot more complex than I'm making it out to be. I don't know if he thinks that that's a good thing or a bad thing, or if he has a laissez-faire attitude about how we raise kids or he, we, he deliberately is saying that we should raise them differently and more like how I was raised. I don't know. But, um, well, it's, it's clear also, that the visuals are, if Helen Mirren's mother, England, he also makes her flawed. I would argue like she says, how will I know I, we were in love if no one witnessed it and makes the cook describe them having mm-hmm. sex. And then it's like still needy in the sense of like, yeah, so you saw we had sex. Is that love? Were we in love? And he goes like, I don't know. My parents seem to be in love and they had sex. Uh, I think sex overlaps with love. And she's like, but you must confirm and validate that we had love. And I'm wondering yeah, what, how that all folds in what like why if she's mother england sort of what that yeah i wondered about that because it there's something about that that really doesn't that she's vain or false or shallow or uh, doesn't like why why wouldn't she why would she need that to be validated by other people but i I don't understand that everything is a parallel to something so maybe the fact that she's asking that question means something i did not glean that answer um the best i can figure is Michael, uh, she and Michael, the intellectuals, Michael's reading a book about the French Revolution. It's his favorite book. Um, history needs witnesses to document it. That's that's the best I could come up with. Yeah. That's, Other than that, it was just weird. Yeah. Not bad. Yes, that was one of the few moments where I felt the symbolism kind of fighting with itself in the sense that I scanned that as like, I guess that must be a symbolic move because it doesn't make sense for Helen Mirren's character diegetically. Not really. We don't know much of her character, though, in fairness. We don't know much of anyone except Michael Camboni really takes up the space in the room. <laughs> yeah, he really yeah. Like, consumes the entire He really film. farts around everywhere. Because I love Sopranos, <laughs> and if you're listening and you like Sopranos, and you'll probably find this to be quite a statement... This is like if Tony Soprano was way worse and much harder to take. <laughs> and he's yeah, pretty yeah. hard he's, to he's, take sometimes. He's he's infinitely worse than Tony Soprano. Yeah. Like imagine he talked so much that he just grates <laughs> on your ears. Yeah, I bet you're like, God damn it, Tony Soprano. Just shut we the get fuck it, up. Gabagool. You gotta die, <laughs> Albert. <laughs> All right. I think that's as good of a place as any, um, unless there's any final thoughts. I think that's from... a sode to rip off. Yeah. That sounds like a sode. Uh, no, I don't, I don't, like I don't have anything. Yeah. I've got, I've got nothing. All I've got my I, I wanna... is to make sure not to forget to recommend the music of Ian Durian's Blockheads. And I believe I've done that twice now. <laughs> You've done that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I wanted to also, uh, explain so we're we're recording this on the 28th of december uh the reason i want to say that is because it's we couldn't get all the guests that we wanted to in this volley of frame rates Uh, oh yeah we wanted way unilaterally decided that tom should do this so tom i just want to thank you for doing this because i did this this is i caused this to happen you're upset that we made our good friend tom watch this movie i'm not upset at all i wanted him to watch after christmas (laughs) yeah i did this that's why i wanted this god yeah, we yeah. all no, watched uh, this like on the 26th, and we're like, okay, Christmas is over. Understood. Christmas is over. Yeah, Christmas, I thought this is a Christmas food is movie. over, okay. perhaps forever. Yeah, uh, yeah. I want to do it just because uh, I value your opinion on film. I think you have a lot of really interesting takeaways. Uh, not only are you like an amazing repository for all the all things that are like factual about movies, but you also have an interesting kind of navigation through films that I always always tickles oh, yeah. me. Oh, and I wanted to, to mention use that your as a... encyclopedic knowledge of cats and their breeds. Um, yeah, yeah. That's, that's Dave. Films. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's a, right. That's, that was a good that bit. Was, that was Dave. I know. I know. Yeah, that was a good bit. But oh seriously, man, when, when Abe said he was gonna try to get you for the episode, I I was like, you probably won't be able to because he's been so busy with the collider stuff lately. But man, I'd love to talk to that guy. So this has been awesome. Oh, 
Well, thanks, yeah, guys. Yeah. You know, I'm, and I'm, I wanted to segue just because I know how annoying it is to uh, plug yourself, but mm-hmm. feel free to plug anything additionally. But I want to send everyone, if they haven't already checked it out, one of my favorite podcast networks in the world is Gamefully Unemployed, oh, wow. uh, which Buddy. includes this guy, Tom Ryman, and <laughs> Dave Bell. Uh, and they are hilarious and need to be viewed more because they put out so much stuff and it's all i can't keep up but when i listen to <laughs> yeah, it mutual it fan is just always fun twitter pointed out that you guys we've our networks have existed roughly the same length of time and i believe you have more than mm-hmm. tw- twice the number of podcast episodes we do so yeah it's something like 500 i think yeah this (laughs) this is like 255 or something so oh my gosh yeah well done uh what just speak for the people what uh what are some of the shows that you have you're really gamboning it over there you guys just really gamboning it yeah (laughs) you really are uh, we've got We Just Watched, uh, which is where we do a weekly review of, usually it's a, it's a recent movie, sometimes it's a little bit older on streaming, and then we also have a We Just Watched classic that we do when patrons pay us to watch a, a movie that they want to hear us talk about. Uh, we also have Hypecast, which is where we talk about movie news and trailers. Um, we've got Fox Mulder is a Maniac, where we, we're doing a rewatch of The X-Files and, and looking at exactly how crazy Agent Fox Mulder behaves in each episode. Um, it has entirely changed the X-Files for me. <laughs> like, yeah. Viewing it through that lens has turned the show into a comedy <laughs> because yeah. he really is out of control. <laughs> he really is a like maniac. That. It's in the name, really. Um, and then Tom and Jeff watch Batman, which is me and Jeff May watching everything that Batman is in, like the animated series, yeah. the the films, the animated movies, every piece of Batman media that has been created. I like Fear and, Worms. Uh, Oh, yeah. fear, that's right. We have a couple of limited series, too, um, that patrons pay us to do, and Fear Worms is one of them where we're watching yeah, the Tremors fair movies. Number, uh, what, the Highlander yeah. one, there's a Lethal Weapon Lethal one, Weapon. there's uh, yeah. The Adventures of Two Guys Watching the Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. <laughs> <laughs> that was, yeah. a, oh my gosh, that was a that was an undertaking. Yeah. <laughs> You're so tired I'm at the so end. Uh, uh, yeah, we are, we are pretty tired um, at the so end. So yeah, that. withdraw your funds from small beans and nah. insert them over there if you want twice nah, you... as much stuff. <laughs> and place them in but your don't. mouth and shove them down with a wooden get spoon. Both, get both. Yeah. Support artists. Get both. Support art. Um, anyway, yeah. yeah. Speaking of supporting art. Um, ever since we've transitioned into sort of a new rhythm, one of the main ways we've been able to keep the podcast going is through this Pick the Flick tier. It really has been taking off, hence a lot of Pick Flicks lately, and we're really grateful for that because that is a, um, a lucrative tier that helps us keep the site going. So thank you again to Don Hardy and everyone who has uh, suggested a movie for us to dig into. Yeah. yeah. Keep picking the hits, you guys. You guys are awesome you definitely pick interesting movies to watch so i i love this so yeah, we get far this. so good i have always said if someone picked a movie that i genuinely was like and a real unpacking this for an hour is a waste of audience's time because there's just not a lot there i would return the money and not do it but so yeah. far so good we haven't had to give back any of that precious money <laughs> Right, right, right. Any of that delicious money. You know, someone's like, no, really, do the Super Mario Brothers movie, really. I'd be like, uh, other shows can do that. That's fine. That's not our vibe. That's fine. Did you you know that the Super Mario Brothers movie was originally going to be a Max Headroom movie, which is a big reason why it looks all cyberpunk? That makes the Goombas make a lot more sense. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that. I love Max Headroom, huh? It was going to be an R-rated Max Headroom movie. All right, so next episode, we'll dig into the lore of the Super Mario Brothers movie. <laughs> Super Mario Brothers movie. But until then... Yeah, that bring, immediately brings it to the top, baby. <laughs> yeah! This has been Frame Rate. Mm. Thank you, everyone. Ah, uh, thanks. This has been a Small Beans Endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The Beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the Small Beans grow into huge, giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you!